Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. Being a federally illegal business, it's hard in every single way. Happily, our customers seem to be pretty resilient and staying with cannabis, like it's one of their you know go-tos that they're not letting go of, even in, in a difficult time. So that's the huge plus. You know, California is full of dreamers, but you also need tenacity to start a company, particularly in the cannabis space, which has seen lots of volatility over the last few years. The one thing that I would tell you that we have that other states don't have is we have people that know what good cannabis is. So you can get someone to buy something one time, but you better show up with your A game. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. There's a lot of really good things that California makes, movies, wine, and now cannabis. My guest today knows all about that. Kyle Kazan is co-founder and CEO of Glasshouse Brands, a vertically integrated, sustainable producer of cannabis products. In 1991, Kyle began investing in real estate and became a manager of private equity funds. He's now launched a total of 23 funds with a current estimated value of almost $3 billion. In 2016, Kyle pivoted to the regulated cannabis industry. Since his early service as a special education teacher and law enforcement officer, Kyle's been a vocal advocate for police reform and ending the war on drugs. He makes frequent appearances on CNN and Fox and has been a guest professor at NYU, USC, and UCLA's business schools. Kyle's a graduate of the University of Southern California, where he played varsity basketball. And his long and varied career has made for great conversation. Let's enter the arena with Kyle Kazan. You know, it's interesting. I was lucky enough to play for a Hall of Fame basketball coach named George Raveling. We were a seventh place team in the Pac-10, I think pretty much all three of my years. My senior year, there were six guards on the team. I was one of those. Three went to the NBA. And so uh, I was so close to greatness. Turns out uh, my number didn't get called, which is why I, I, instead of you saying after a 12-year NBA career, you then went into business. So then I became a special education teacher and I was making no money. And sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And that's, I said, I, I'm going to have to prepare for retirement. And I started investing in, in real estate. Turned out I had a bit of a knack. The timing couldn't have been better. It was the savings and loan crisis. And then after four years uh, of working down in, in Watts, I switched and I became a police officer, which actually made my real estate investing easier since they gave me a car 
to drive around and even I can get through traffic faster to go see the real estate. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get, I'm sure that my f- police friends are like, really? It was during that time that I, I started building a portfolio and uh, a family friend who had been running a hedge fund, he approached me and said, hey, have you thought about private equity? I didn't know anything about private equity. And that's where we started. Uh, it's been more than 23 funds now, I think, but that's where I really got rolling. And in 1999, to get out of the police car, I started a property management firm to uh, manage the 250 units that we had acquired during my police career. And that company today manages about 12,000 units. I'm still the majority owner, still the chairman, and uh, about $5 billion or more. Uh, It's one of the major housing providers in Southern California. And by the way, Coach Raveling is a board member of Glasshouse Brands. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, he was head of Nike International Basketball after he was done coaching. So he has a really interesting career and, and a, a great perspective. But uh, the hardest thing I've ever done is is grow a company in an, a federally illegal industry where banking is a pain and yeah. payroll service is a pain. All the things that I got used to in growing a, a company in a traditional industry of real estate, I didn't have all those tools. And so uh, a lot of those tools are starting to come, but I'm very happy that I got a thick skin as a police officer. I got a thick skin as, you know, a basketball player going up and playing at Oregon and Cal and a lot of loud uh, students calling me all kinds of names (laughs) and things like that. So the culmination of everything that I've, I've learned have, it's really helped as I lead this company and and, in Glasshouse. Yeah. And being uh, creative and resilient. How did uh, the light bulb go off on cannabis? When did that kind of first come to you? I would say this, I wasn't against the war on drugs per se when I was a police officer until the fifth year is when I was like, this is ridiculous. This is just like a waste of time. And so when I left in 99, I just went, put my head down, started working hard. And somewhere around 2007, some hedge fund friends asked me what I thought about the American drug war. And I said, oh, it's awful policy. It's a war on poor people. It's, it's just, you know, and they, and they asked me a bunch of questions and I said, look, I, I made a lot of drug arrests and it just, it was pointless. It was hurting them. It was a waste of, of taxpayer money. We've become the most jailing population on the planet. You know, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. Eh, not really when it comes to this. And so they asked me if I joined a group called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And uh, I did. It was basically a bunch of retired police officers, judges, and DAs, and U.S. attorneys. And we just spoke truth to power. And because I was willing to do that, when the ballot proposition 2011 here in California, Proposition 19, which would have made California the first legal adult use market, not just medicinal, when that happened, I got a lot of coverage, which then made me Googleable and the fact that I could raise money for real estate, people started reaching out to me. And all of a sudden, the idea of cannabis as a business came across my transom. But I would tell you, Tom, I said no, because I said there were a lot of police officers that really, really looked at me as Benedict Arnold. And shame on me for speaking truth to power and that I've crossed the thin blue line the wrong way. And so I said, guys, if you take my money, you're putting a huge target on your back. Plus, they're going to want to they're going to want to lock me up for what I'm saying. So I, I just stayed out of it. Um, but I, I paid attention. And then after Colorado and, and Washington, when they they went full full wreck in 2016, I started looking at at this as a business potential. Yeah. And then specific to, to Glasshouse, how did that kind of come together? 
I'm a risk taker by nature as an entrepreneur. And I'm, uh, and I think I have the, the number one trait you need as an entrepreneur, which is grit, but I I'm also wonky and I like to do, I like to do a lot of due diligence. And so I'm very cautious. So when it came down to cannabis, we looked at Colorado, we couldn't make good sense of the laws. They didn't want out of state money. So we came back to California and, and I said, look, we we're well connected here politically. We know all the cities, real estate is a component. So I think we're perfectly matched to try and learn uh, this business and, and possibly participate. And ultimately we, we raised a fund, I think it was $12.6 million, which was 2016. I'd already, I already owned an asset with some partners up in Santa Barbara, 150,000 square foot greenhouse that we had bought for the purpose of cannabis. And it wasn't legal up there. It was an amazingly high hill. It was like staring at, at the Himalayas and going, how are we going to climb this? But with some grit and some really smart people uh, that I was able to surround myself with, we were able to kind of get that ball rolling. And, and we did. Today, what assets does the business own and over what time period did you accumulate them? I know you're in growth mode and all of that. And um, what is the business today? So when I said that we owned a 150,000 square foot greenhouse, the only other ag that I'd ever been invested in, my partner and I own some big uh, pecan farms just south of Macon, Georgia. So now I'm in a facility that's 150,000 square feet. And I'm like, my God, I've never seen anything this big. And I can't imagine filling this all up with cannabis. So that was 2016. As we sit here today, the, the main reason we went, we went public, in fact, the only reason we went public was we needed to raise capital because the second largest greenhouse facility in America came available. And so we needed, at the time, it was $118 million just to buy it. And the only way to do it was to, was to go public. And, the, and an IPO wouldn't have gotten us there, according to the investment bankers. And so we ended up doing the deal. We bought, we bought the property actually for $93 million. It's 5.5 million square feet of greenhouse and it's also, it has three cogeneration facilities on site, which means we take natural gas and we turn them into electricity. We also throw off carbon, carbon dioxide and heat, which really helps greenhouse. So they're amazingly um, environmentally friendly. We also have a, a very large solar field too that we use. So to us, we looked at it and said, we'll be able to grow the highest quality cannabis uh, for sure in the country at the lowest price in the country. And so we just announced third quarter earnings last week, and uh, we even beat our estimates on on how low we could get the cogs for that quarter. So we're we're really excited, and we think we've got a durable competitive advantage. And so the business kind of breaks down retail, wholesale, wholesale biomass. Why is vertical integration so important in your mind? When you're in a new industry like we are, it helps if you control all, all areas of the business. And remember, nothing is mature. So to us, it takes our reliance on other people and other companies that are just not yet established out of the risk profile. And also, if you do it well, you can take your costs down so that the price to the end consumer will be the most competitive. And, and I think that's why we decided we need to have retail. You know, we have seven stores in California right now. We'll end the year with 10. We think that there's a big opportunity to, to continue to grow that footprint. And we think it's valuable. On the wholesale side of, of cannabis, you know, we're growing so much that it's important that 
you know, we sell it. It's an ag product. And so there's a big need for it. When we went public, uh, we basically had a virtual roadshow. The big questions everybody wanted to know was, okay, you're going to buy this. Picture an, an airport. At the end of the runway are just all these wreckages of huge planes in Canada and all that nobody who's bought a big farm has really succeeded. So now you're going to take off this big plane and you're not going to crash at the end of the runway. So, and you're going to grow it for cheaper than everybody else at a high quality. And most importantly, you're going to sell all this biomass, which turned out we went into an, uh, an, we're in an era of commoditization right now. So, and what I said was, I know it's amazing arrogance to sit here and say, uh, we're going to do the same thing, only we're going to get it right. Um, a couple things of note. One, we bought something that was valued by our insurance at about $250 million for 93. And the second thing is we told the market, this was going to be our first big quarter where we, we really went our million square feet of flowering greenhouse that all came to market. And so we said we would grow it for $150 a pound. We came in at $134 a pound. So we beat our estimate. And then we basically, we sold 69,000 pounds, you know, so almost 30 tons in the third quarter. So over three months. And so it felt really good. So we still have a ways to go. I'm not here claiming that victory. What I am saying is what we said we would do, what was possible, we were able to prove out that indeed it is possible. And, and I don't think there's any better sunlight location in the country than Ventura, California for this plant. Kyle, what brands do you own and how do they kind of compare on format and price? Tell me a little bit more about them. Because we have these stores, we have direct access to the consumer. And in California, if you want to buy cannabis at a legal store, you basically have to give your driver's license. So uh, we capture quite a bit of data about you and we can start seeing, you know, which demographic likes this zip codes and, and that. And so what we were able to do is one, start targeting in what brands for which people. And so we have two top five brands. One is Glasshouse Farms that sells flour basically in jars. So for people that like to grind it and roll it and smoke it in a, you know, roll their own joint, they can buy the flour that way. We like to call it an everyday luxury at a very affordable price because it's, it's quality and it's, and the nice thing is since we control our supply chain, we're able to get a consistency. Many of our competitors do not control their supply chain and are out there in the spot market, which has not been well established. And then Last year, we were able to buy Plus Gummies, P-L-U-S. And as somebody who, you know, I try everything, uh, but as someone who enjoys gummies, especially sleep gummies, Tom, I am so excited. I don't envision how we can't go really hard after that top spot. The other thing that's interesting is people that buy cannabis, we have found, want a connection to a farm, to a plant, much like if you go to a winery. You know, you don't really go to some place that claims to be the the owner of the wine they put out and they buy everything on the spot market. So if you think of this like wine, you're going to want to go and see, even for gummies, that, oh, you're growing these strains and, and under this sunlight. And it's, you know, most people are pretty health conscious out here in California that use cannabis. Being in Southern California is more than excellent growing conditions. 
Kyle told me about California's long history with cannabis and why it's the place for outstanding products. Every year I, I teach a class at NYU Business School to the second year MBAs. And one year I brought my wife. And as soon as we were walking down there in Soho to NYU, she's like, I need to get a slice. Well, we, we have pizza out here. There's no excitement to get a slice of pizza in Southern California. And people eat pizza, but when you're in New York, it's like, oh, this is New York pizza. And then I know I was in Philadelphia with her one time. Well, I've got to get a cheesesteak. And, and I've been to Tequila, Mexico, and I've been to Champagne, France. And there is something very special about that. And so when it comes to California, you know, it's a different deal out here. So when you think about cannabis, you know, it's been around a long, a long time in a lot of places. But because California is pretty permissive in a lot of ways, you know, up the summer of love in 1967, you know, up in San Francisco, people were smoking cannabis and that was a felony to even have a seed. And what happened that I think really pushed things towards California's favor was that after the Vietnam War, a lot of young people came back pretty disenchanted and they moved up to the Emerald Triangle, the Mendocino, Humboldt, up, up to the northern part of our state. And they just dropped out and they wanted to get off the grid and wanted to be left alone and they would grow cannabis. And that was their business. And it's not a great area to grow. It's a great area to grow and hide. Not like a normal, it's cold, it's hilly. And these, these folks were super gritty. And the fauna that makes cannabis special are the different strains and the, and the talented growers. And so that's something that California has. And also part of the culture, I, you know, I, I was in high school in the eighties, graduating 85. It was easier to get cannabis than to go spot beer at the local liquor store. So we all smoked and it wasn't a big deal. My parents found out they weren't that upset. They're from California. So I think it's become a cultural thing, but also when I taste cannabis from different parts of the country, there's nothing, I mean, you, I can taste the difference in California. I've had wine from Albuquerque. I've had wine from New York. I've had wine from Mexico, but there is Napa wine and Sonoma wine. It's, it's darn good. And that's why yeah. it wins. I think that California, as long as it plays things well and makes, makes things accessible and treats its farmers, you know, well here, I think you're going to see that there will be a premium and we just need to, we need to take care of our industry. Like, you know, with Hollywood, you know, that, so that's, that's how I look at it. Obviously there's some challenges in the industry and that's all over the place, including Canada. What's the state of the market? And obviously with challenges comes opportunity. How do you kind of size, size all of that up? It's a really tough market out there. Being a federally illegal business, even though, you know, our company is large, and publicly traded, so we're audited. We bank with a, a publicly traded multi-state bank, just a regular old bank. But getting access to capital loans, not easy. I can tell you, we've had people say, hey, I wanted to buy $100,000 of your shares. And it was like exceedingly difficult. So the access to capital, making it hard to buy our stock, it's very difficult that way. And then, And then the other thing is you have to be vertically integrated in every state that you're in. So the MSOs or multi-state operators, we're not one of those. We're, we're a single state, you know, just California. They'll have like supply chains in 30 states and that's just inefficient. And at some point they're going to have to deal with that. So it's hard in every single way, plus the economy, 
whether it's defined as, as a recession or not, it's, it's a tough economy out there. And a lot of our, our customers are young people. And so they're getting, the inflation has hit them very hard. So happily, our customers seem to be pretty resilient and staying with cannabis. Like it's one of their, you know, go-tos that they're not letting go of even in, in a difficult time. So that's the huge plus. Also, I'm looking forward to this new Congress to see what happens. The Democrats, when they took power and they had all three, you know, the, the executive branch, both houses of Congress, yep. and you're like, okay, there was this huge excitement because of all the promises. So now we just had the midterms, they're going to see a new Congress, but this Congress thus far has done absolutely nothing. I mean, when I say nothing, zero. And the president, you know, who ran on that this should be a state's thing and which I agree with, and also that people shouldn't be in prison for a plant. And so far, he has not let anybody out. Now, I believe, because I'm very active with Mission Green uh, as a board member, that their mission is to get nonviolent cannabis prisoners out of, out of prison. I think we're now going to start seeing some things happen. We're in a federally illegal business, and 280E of the tax code does not allow us to write off many normal business expenses. So it appears that we're more profitable. We have to pay much higher taxes. So not only do we not have representation, but we have very high taxation. Like, and, and so there's a lot of small players out there. So when I see the politicians saying that they want to help the people that have been harmed by the war on drugs, anybody who's out there that's doing business now is getting harmed again and again and again. So now all of that said, I am close to what's going on. I do believe we're going to see uh, the Democrats are going to have a tough fight, I think, to hold the presidency. It's going to be a battle. And I think that they will be more pliable because it's going to look really bad to their base. And by the way, majority Republicans also favor legalization. Yeah, it seems like such an easy win. But a larger majority of Democrats. So I'm, I'm excited, frustrated that it's taken this long. That said, it's given us that are in this industry a bit of a moat because money is staying you know, largely on the sidelines. But I think in the next two years, in fact, I, I think when we toast in 2023, I think it's going to be a very, very big year for cannabis. And, and I'm excited about it. I think the company is so interesting because yes, federal legalization is huge and you'd be like incredibly positioned for that. But it's not like you don't have massive growth opportunity just in California. Talk about like the total addressable market in California, your runway for growth just there. So one, we're excited. If legalization took 10 years, we're, we're positioned to continue, to continue to grow here. We own a total of 6 million square feet of greenhouse you know, today that would be a fraction of the overall 100% market of greenhouse grown cannabis. So right now of, of our 5.5 million square feet, I think we've turned on a million seven of it. The rest is still growing to a renter, tomatoes and cucumbers. So we're not under pressure to grow. And so the next million square feet will turn on. We'll turn it on. We feel the pricing makes good sense for us and that we that we're ready to start selling that next tranche. So that may be it may be next year. We haven't we haven't made that decision as of yet. We are built for tomorrow more so than than say the multi-state operators because we won't have to restructure. We would just have to find a way to start transporting our product out of state and start distributing it that way. We don't think that'll be terribly hard, especially for a state that provides half the fruits and vegetables to the United States anyway. So 
I would say if you're looking at investments, there are a number of MSOs that I that I think are, are very smartly run and, and and have a good runway. But for us, I think our brightest days are after federal legalization. And in the meantime, we're happy to, you know, to be in the super, super big state. The one thing that I would tell you that we have that other states don't have is we have people that know what good cannabis is. So you can get someone to buy something one time, but you better, you better show up with your A game. And so I think while, while that is a, you know, it's a concern that you've got a sophisticated group of people when it comes to this product, if you can satisfy them and you can win here, you're good outside of California. We, there's no, no better around the world than, than the folks that we, we uh, work with here. Talk about the team, you know, your management team around you. I looked through the bios, you know, everybody has an amazing background. Maybe just get your thoughts on the team. Yeah, that's what I'm most proud of is the team we have today. I am thrilled to death. Uh, one of my co-founders, a guy named Graham Farrar, he's a fellow board member and uh, president chief cannabis officer. Yes, you probably won't hear that C-suite uh, description in any other business. He is a, he's a gritty guy. Uh, we've become very good friends. And so he's, he's become quite the voice of cultivating cannabis and, and, um, the E out of ESG is a big deal to, to us when we're, when we're growing this plant. Our CFO is a guy named, uh, Mark Vendetti. You know, he's been CFO of, of some different publicly traded companies and someone who is loyal to his team, even a new team. So he is absolutely spectacular. Lots of public market experience, which is something I lack. And then our CRO chief revenue officer is a guy named Halal Tapsh. And this is a guy from Lebanon, and I'm sure you know people from Lebanon and Israel and you know, the Middle East, not an easy neighborhood to come out of. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. And so he became the head of sales and marketing for Red Bull in the Middle East, and then did so well that they made him the head of Red Bull sales and marketing in North America. And so that that's my C-suite as we sit here today. We run the company pretty lean. And so these gentlemen are really good. And then our, uh, we just hired our corporate counsel and his name is Ben Vega. This is a guy who grew up in La Puente, California. That's a lot of people would say it's the other, other side of the tracks. And, and, you know, when I asked him, did you grow up smoking cannabis? Like, you know, where I grew up, if you get, if you got busted for, for marijuana, you don't recover. And he was able to get himself from La Puente to Harvard. And if someone from my class, the people that went to Harvard, it's always impressive. That's a great school, but it's less impressive from the neighborhood I came from than where Ben came from. And so I, I love his story. And so I, impressive. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that I was impressive, but when I hear that, it's like, man, you just, you know, you just shouldered in. We just have some amazing people, super smart, care about our team. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the luckiest CEO that I know, and I know plenty that just, you know, these are good folks working hard under, under difficult conditions. I would suggest that all the listeners check out Glasshouse. It's such a cool company, obviously growing organically and through acquisitions in various segments and an awesome team. Tom, I really thank you. If I can just leave your listeners with this. The one thing that I wanted to make sure we're crystal clear, you know, when I was in the teacher's lounge down there in South Central, or I was standing over the hood of a patrol car at a 7-Eleven having, you know, having a cup of, of tea. The folks there, they would invest in stocks and there was just this big disconnect. And I always felt like, you know, they deserve better. It shouldn't just be the institutional investors. Nothing wrong with institutional investors, but these folks wanted to be successful too. 
And so what, what we did here is, and if you compare what we put out as far as projections and numbers, we get pretty granular compared to every single other company out there. I don't know anybody that gets as granular as we do. And the other thing that we did last year, even though COVID was still going here in California, is we did an in-person annual meeting. All you had to do is show us one stock. And I think we opened the day at about $4.50. One stock. So if you give up your cup of coffee at Starbucks and you come out there, we hold it at Camarillo at our huge farm. We want people to come out there. We want to give them a tour. So if you just have one share and you're that school teacher, you're that police officer, or you're the institutional investor, you can come out there and I'm there. Graham's there. Mark's there. Halal's there. You can go up and talk to uh, the C-suite. And you can tell them what you're happy about, not happy about, ask questions. It's a brand new industry. And this might be a good time for people to put some amount of risk capital at work because there are going to be some big winners. And after federal legalization, I'd be stunned if you didn't see almost all stocks get a bump and the ones that are truly good companies uh, get a, a big bump over that time. So I welcome everybody. California, as we we talked about before, it's a great place to come here and visit, travel, come visit us. And if you decide to take a chance on us and buy a share, come out and meet us, see what we do and, and get granular. Glasshouse Brands is already enjoying huge success in California and with federal legislation on the horizon, they're poised to be a top brand across the country. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast and in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to Kyle for joining me on the podcast today. From basketball at USC to teaching to law enforcement and real estate and now cannabis, Kyle's had a fascinating career filled with incredible success. I can't wait to see what's next for Glasshouse Brands. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.